So uh, this past week, a number of staff and some of the elders and deacons were at a conference called Exponential. It's put on by a friend of mine who has sort of made it his life's goal to make sure everybody understands that the, um, that the mission of God is, is a revolutionary call and that this whole thing is supposed to be explosive right that uh, that we're part of something that is actually supposed to be exponential we're not just called to love god and to serve others but we're all called to reach one and that uh, when that happens right if everybody reached were to reach out to one person a year right then the, the church would double every year and then and then that's that becomes exponential after that and uh so this was a this was a challenging, uh, thoughtful, and also a very motivational uh, couple days of conference, and uh, they had some very very gifted uh, speakers in. I am encouraged. Many people are discouraged about the church and the future of the church. I've grown more encouraged as I see really really gifted uh, leaders coming up who are young leaders who are coming up, and they had some great communicators. And in fact, uh, perhaps a little bit too good for my uh, own sense of uh, self-worth. Uh, there, was, uh, there was one guy the first day, and, and when he finished preaching, half the people are jumping up and down, and everybody's screaming. And, you know, and I thought, wow, uh, if that's preaching, I've never preached in my life. Uh, and then... Uh, then the second day, they had, uh, they had a guy, and, and uh, I sort of came away with the, the same feeling like, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian if that's, uh, <laughs> if that's what it looks like. So the last person to speak was a, was a guy out of uh, northern Florida, sort of, a, sort of presented himself as a bit of a hillbilly, and he said, uh, he goes, you know... You've all been hearing some great speakers, and I've been feeling worse and worse as the conference goes on, because I know I'm coming up. And he said almost the same things I had been thinking. Like, when Al spoke, I thought, I've, I've never done I've never, never could I do that. And, you know, starting to just question everything. But he said, then God spoke to me and said, Joby, I got you there, so everyone will feel good about themselves. Just go out there and be who you are. And he said, you got to understand, he said, uh, you know, I grew up a little uh, fire, fire uh, work stand off of uh, the back Interstate 87. He said, we gave the world wide-wheeled Camaros and the mullet haircut. And he said, my name's JB. He says, I almost got named Junior Junior because where I live, that happens. Uh, fortunately, somebody told my parents uh, just before I was born, you don't name him Junior Junior. The granddaddy is JB, and the other, and then his dad is JB Junior. He's JB the third, not Junior Junior. So he said, uh, so that that's my background. But he said, I have seen that God occasionally does something very significant in a short order to change somebody's trajectory. And then he, he shared some of his stories. One of them was when he was a high school football player, he was involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He was at an FCA meeting one day, and he said, the song is going on when Coach Edwards came up to me, and he said, 
Joby Martin, I want you to get up there when this song ends and I want you to preach. And he said, what? He goes, when this song's over, I want you to get up there and preach. He goes, about what? He says, about 30 minutes. And he goes, well, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. He goes, you think I care if you're comfortable? Was Moses comfortable talking to Pharaoh? Was Jesus comfortable on the cross? I don't care if you're comfortable or not. Now get up there and preach for about 30 minutes about Jesus. And so Joby said, so I got up there when the song ended, and I preached for about 30 minutes. And he says, and two of my classmates uh, decided that they wanted to become Christ followers. And he says, the coach said to me afterwards, he goes, Joby, when you got up there, you lit up. And some people responded, I believe we found one thing you can do. You're going to be a preacher. So uh, he said, that moment was a, you know, sort of an inflection point in my life. And things changed. And so I want us to think about inflection points because we have come now, we're getting into the final chapters of Luke, and we come to a very uh, significant passage. Now, it's a challenging passage. Uh, Sometimes the cookies are on the bottom shelf, sometimes they're not. Um, Joby said, Keep it simple, and, and I was all excited to keep it simple, and then I was thinking, oh, wait, I'm in Luke 21, 41. Uh, this is not a simple passage, but it is a powerful passage, and uh, I believe it does unfold if, you, if you'll give me a little bit of uh, leeway today to try and build this case. So what we're going to see is that Jesus uh, makes really uh, unthinkably bold statements about himself. As a rule, we're a little put off when somebody uh, says how great they are, right? It's just, ah, it doesn't quite sit right. I remember my dad being really miffed uh, at Muhammad Ali when he said he was the greatest of the world. He says he's not just saying he's the heavyweight champion of the world. He's saying he's the greatest of all time. He goes, even if it's true, he shouldn't be the one saying it. He needs to let other people say it. And uh, I remember being a little put off when Ricky Anderson beat uh, Lou Brock's all-time Major League uh, stolen bases record. And Lou Brock was there. Brock had had the record before. And Brock was there to congratulate uh, Henderson for breaking the record. And, And Henderson just kept saying, I'm now the greatest. I'm now the greatest. And I thought, oh, that's not what you want to be saying right now. Because Brock was being so deferential to him. And so we don't like it when people make really big, bold, crass uh, statements about how great they are. Jesus makes the biggest statements of all time, right? He's not just claiming to be the greatest heavyweight fighter. He's not just claiming to be the greatest base stealer. He's claiming to be the greatest person of all time. He's claiming to be God himself. And these are, these are claims that we need to deal with. And I would suggest they, they force us to make decisions about Jesus. And uh, they force inflection points, if you will. So uh, our passage is, is Luke 20, uh, 20, 41 and following. I want to I warm us up and, and give you one that's, that's a little bit easier uh, to see. It comes out of John 8. 
Uh, John 8, you're, you might be familiar. This is the place where Jesus is having a little um, back and forth with the Pharisees. They have recently tried to trick him and trap him when they bring a woman that's caught in adultery. And they say, what are we supposed to do? <clears throat> because they're trying to get Jesus sideways with either the law or the crowd. And he sort of dispenses with that masterfully as he always does. And then um, he makes some statements about <laughs> who he is that set them on edge. And, and they come back and they say, we're right when we call you a Samaritan and demon-possessed. A Samaritan was the, sort of a racial slur. And Jesus doesn't respond to the racial slur. He's, he's not worried about being called a Samaritan. Um, but he says, I'm not demon-possessed. I'm, uh, I'm actually giving you words of life. I'm the one that can lead to eternal life. And they start to go apoplectic, and they're going, what are you talking about? And, uh, and, and Jesus will say, uh, after a little while, look, I, I can't lie. Uh, if I say that I'm not who I am, I would be a liar like you're lying. You say you know God, but you don't. And then um, they say to him, because um, he says, I've got these words of life and eternal life. And they go, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Abraham died. The prophets died. Everybody dies. You're saying you've got words of eternal life. Are you greater than Abraham? What are you thinking? And um, they say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. Abraham had lived a 1,000 years earlier. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And uh, at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went away. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's not saying, I was, <laughs> okay, although he's claiming that. The, 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 the words I am are actually the name of God given by God to Moses back in Exodus 3. So um, when Moses was called by God out of the burning bush and said, Moses, I want you to you know, go and lead the, the Jewish people out of captivity. I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, you know, let my people go. Moses rejects it for a while and then eventually he says, well, well, when I go to the people and say, God has sent me, they're going to ask, what's this God like? Which God? What is his name? And uh, I, I need to know what to say when they ask me that question. And God, the Father, at that moment, reveals his name. Up until this point in the Bible, we only have titles for God. We don't have his name. But at that point, he says to Moses, you tell them, I am sent you, right? And this is, a, this is a form of the verb to be. It's very difficult for us to fully translate it. Uh, it's the only word in Hebrew that has four consonants in it. Every other word in the entire Hebrew language has just three. We translate that Yahweh, that's the Hebrew term. And it is a sort of a self-referential statement. God is saying, I am who I am, right? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need anybody else to define me. I am who I am. I will be who I will be, not who you make me. 
I am. You tell them, Moses, I am sent you. So this name of God is, is considered so sacred by the Jews that they will not ever say it. Because the second commandment says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? I, I think they misunderstood the meaning of that. But they are so nervous about somehow denigrating the name of God that they decide never to say it. And so instead, whenever it shows up in the Bible, instead of saying Yahweh, what they would do is they would say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. But in order to keep it straight, they they the, the, they put in the Hebrew word, the Hebrew consonants for Yahweh with the Hebrew vowels for Adonai. They put those two together. So you'd have this weird four-letter word, only four-letter word in the entire Hebrew language, four-consonant four word that they didn't know. We, for a while, pronounced that word Jehovah. We just phonetically pronounced it and didn't understand what they were doing for years and years. But in your English Bible, the word Yahweh, I am, gets written out, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, as opposed to the word Lord, which means master, which is capital L, little o, little r, little d, okay? So Jesus says, and that's going to be important in a second, but In John 8, Jesus makes this bold claim to the Pharisees when they say, you weren't, who are you, you're not as great as Abraham. He says, I tell you, I'm before Abraham, before Abraham was, by the way, I am, I am God. I am one with God the Father. At which point they go, again, they, they pick up stones to kill him. This is blasphemy, they can't even hear it. So Jesus will make these kind of claims over and over. You just have to see when he's making it. So we get this now in Luke chapter 20. There's been tussles back and forth all chapter. He asks them questions that they won't answer. They ask him questions and he keeps giving them answers that make them look like idiots. Right? So now they decide they don't want to ask him any more questions. But he says, wait, wait, don't go anywhere. I've got another question for you. So this is now um, Luke 21, beginning, or 20, beginning with verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say that Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? Um, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he his son? So what's going on here is he's trying to, he's trying to force them to see something out of a Psalm that's one of their favorite Psalms that they've never understood. They've never thought it through. And it deals with the idea of who the Messiah is going to be. So, in English, we use the word Messiah or anointed one. In Greek, it's the word Christ. So, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's a title. You're saying Jesus, the anointed one. So, this idea of an anointed one 
is first introduced on page 2 of the Old Testament. Old Testament opens, Genesis 1, everything's great, everything crashes. Evil, sin, death, chaos, all kinds of bad things happen. Page 2, God promises, I am going to send an anointed one. I'm going to send a rescuer. I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a proto-evangelion. I'm going to send a serpent crusher. I'm going to send the Messiah. I'm going to send this special person who will fix things, who will make things right, right? This is the one you need to be looking for. So you read all the way through the Old Testament looking for the anointed one, looking for the Messiah, the Christ, this special one sent from God, and he doesn't show up. Right? First you think, well, it'll be, you know, it'll be Cain. No, it's not Cain. That's not Abel. Then, then God calls Abraham. You think, well, it's going to be Abraham's son, Isaac. It's not Isaac. And then you just keep going through. It's not anybody. So the people get discouraged, but throughout the Old Testament, God keeps reiterating this promise. I'm going to send a special anointed Messiah, a Christ. A, 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 a rescuer, a savior. And there are all these prophecies that are given by the prophets, descriptions of what this special anointed one is going to be like. And at Christmas time, we tend to parade a number of them that are particularly big at Christmas. So Isaiah 7 says, this, this uh, Messiah will be born to a virgin. And Micah 5 says, this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And Hosea 11 says, this Messiah is going to be called out of Egypt, right? So there's all these descriptions about the Messiah. If you take all of them, there's two, three hundred total. You can fit them into three buckets. There are those that describe the Messiah as a king, a conqueror, a military hero, a big strong man. There are those that describe the Messiah as a priest. Uh, an intermediary, somebody that's going to step into the gap to help people before God. And then there are a number of those that describe the Messiah as someone who is going to suffer, who is going to, who is going to bleed, who is going to, is going to be uh, sacrificed for others. Now, one of the problems the Jews had is how do you put all three of these things together? Right? The conquering king, mighty man, doesn't go with the suffering servant who's going to die and bleed. And by the way, in Jewish law, a king couldn't be a priest, priest couldn't be a king. So how do you have any Messiah that's going to make sense out of these three categories? Now, we obviously, in the end, see that Jesus does make sense. He is the conquering one. He is the high priest. He is the suffering servant who conquers by dying, right? Jesus will make sense out of all of those. But they can't make sense out of that uh, at the time of Christ. So what they have done between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New is they basically dropped the second two. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to be a political strongman, like David, right? David was their 
prototype. David, King David, was sort of a combination of George Washington, because he was the first person to unite all 12 tribes. He was Thomas Jefferson, because he wrote so much of their, uh, of their founding documents. He was, uh, he, he was Abraham Lincoln, and that he united everybody. He was John Kennedy, and that he was a good-looking ladies' man. He was General Eisenhower, and that he was a military hero. He was, he was everybody, and by that, he was additionally a, a poet, and he was a musician, Nobody was higher than David, right? So David is the big guy, and, and Jesus says, okay, I've got a question for you. You keep saying that, that this Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, but you're limiting it to that. You've got a military strongman that you're looking for. But here's a question. Why would David describe this person as his master, right? So how is it that they, that the Christ, the Messiah could be David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, so he's quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Now, this is where we go. This is why I went to John 8, actually, So the Lord said to my Lord, this is two different words. This is the Lord Yahweh, I am, God the Father, said to my Lord, Adonai, Master. So David said, this is Jesus' question, how could David say that God the Father said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? If David is greater, if, if this Messiah is going to simply be a descendant of David, how could that happen? Right? Well, th- they, don't, they don't have an answer because they don't have a category for what's going on. See, what the answer is, the incarnation. The answer is, the Messiah is not simply a military hero. The Messiah is not simply another person. The Messiah is God. God in the flesh. God becomes man. And so he is, at the same time, because he's fully man, he is a descendant of David, but he also precedes David, and he is David's Lord. Now, there's more than that going on in this passage, but, it, but a good man knows his limitations. I'm not going to keep pushing to try and help you understand some of the implications of the whole priesthood side of this. I want you to see the big, huge claim Jesus makes. Right? He gets in front of the Pharisees, and he says, I, I want to remind you, I'm not claiming simply to be the Messiah as you understand the Messiah. I'm not claiming simply to be a great teacher. I'm not claiming simply to be a good example. I am claiming all of those things. But I am also claiming to be eternal. I am claiming to be God. I am claiming to be the suffering servant. I am claiming to be the high priest. I am claiming to be the king. (laughs) You can't make bigger claims than Jesus makes. And so when they hear this, right, they are furious and they will move to kill 
Jesus. He sort of forces our hand that way. You can't say he's a good person, but not beyond that. He doesn't ever really make that an option. So C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is either weird and bizarre, or it's of ultimate importance. It's not modestly important. I would say the same thing about Jesus. He's either crazy, deranged, a megalomaniac, a liar, or he is God, right? He's not somewhere in between. And today, lots of people want to make him somewhere in between. Jesus establishes himself as a, as a turning point. <laughs> to deal with Jesus means you go one way or the other, but you can't just make him a good guy. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians, the other religious leaders, will reject Jesus. They do not reject him because they don't understand his claims. They understand his claims. They understand what he's saying. They can't answer his claims, but they can deny them, and they can try and put him to death, which is ultimately what they will do. But they understand, based on what he said, based on how he ties the Old Testament together, that he's claiming to be God. So, we come to this inflection point. And I want to say to you, perhaps this is a turning point for you. Perhaps you have not understood the big claims Jesus makes. They're not small. You're either in or you're out. You either say, okay, I get it, I'm signing up, or you say, "Mm, I'm not. But what you can't do is say, this is a modestly important decision. It's either (laughs) the most important decision you make, or it's a bunch of foolish talk. So if you're in, great. If you're not in and you want in, I'm going to give you that chance as as I uh, go to prayer. I just want you to understand everything from the beginning chapters of Luke has been leading up to the death of Jesus Christ in our place and his resurrection as the final capstone of his claims, as the confirmation of his claims. And he continues to make this claim over and over again to anybody who will listen. I am God. I am the Messiah. I'm the Savior of the world. I'm the one God promised all the way back on page 2 of the Old Testament. I am the fulfillment of all the prophecies. I am the greatest person you've ever met. I am fully God and fully man. And I came down to live, love, teach, serve. But I came down to die in your place. And all those who sign up with me, I will give eternal life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, again for this book that uh, is so marvelously layered. There is so much going on, and the more we push and dig, the more it reveals uh, your wisdom, your, um, your plan. So we thank you for that. We thank you uh, that we have got this book to guide us, and we thank you. Heavenly Father, that you would love us enough that you would send your Son, 
that there would be a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, reconciled, that you, you sent someone to show us how to live, to model how to live, but also to die to pay our debt. And I want to pray for those, um, Lord God, who may not have ever understood who Jesus is, the claims he makes, the offer that he makes. I want to pray, Spirit of God, that you would meet with them now. And I want to say to those of you um, who may be in that camp, you don't know that Christ is your Savior and Lord. If you would like to receive him, I'm going to give you that chance. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I am going to ask you uh, to tell somebody before you leave. But I want to give you a chance to pray a prayer very similar to the one that I prayed 30-some years ago. And that is, Heavenly Father, Uh, thank you for sending your son. I see things more clearly than I have in the past. I understand now that Christianity is not a uh, moral exercise. It's not about me trying to be better and better. I can't be good enough. I can't even keep my own standards, let alone yours. And the idea that you would send your son to die in my place and and to take upon himself the punishment for my sin, I, I can't really begin to comprehend that, but I know it's an offer that I will never get anything to compare with. So I want in. Lord Jesus, uh, I'm in. I'm signing up. I want to be one of your followers, one of your learners, one of your disciples. Uh, Thank you for what you have done for me. Help me to, to, to become more and more like you every day. I pray this In Christ's name, amen.